Good morning. My name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm one of the uh, pastors on staff here at FAC. And as John mentioned uh, earlier, we are going to launch a new sermon series in the Psalms. And we'll be camping out here for the rest of the summer. Um, there's no better place to start a series in the Psalm than the beginning. Uh, so go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 1, the first Psalm. Um, the, the book of Psalms is a unique book of the Bible in that it was not uh, written chronologically, uh, nor was it intended to be read chronologically. Uh, you might wonder, why on earth then, after saying that, would we start in the first psalm? What's the point of that um, if it's not meant to be read chronologically? Um, the reason we're beginning there is because I want you guys to see that Psalm 1 really is an introduction or a preface to the rest of the psalms. Um, there's not a single commentator that I came across that didn't mention this. Um, psalm 1 is the lens that we look through uh, in which to interpret the rest of the psalm. We need to walk through Psalm 1 if we wish to understand the rest of the Psalms. Essentially, Psalm 1 has been compared to the extravagant doorway that gets to a mansion that is filled to its depths with wealth, uh, wisdom, and insight. Uh, And so we need to first walk through Psalm 1 in order to tap into the wisdom of the rest of the Psalms. I mean, there is a wealth of insight in the Psalms um, because the purpose of the Psalms, they were written uh, to poetically reflect humanity's journey with God. They, they, are, uh, they celebrate the relationship between a divine God and a helpless human race. And as you read, you'll find that the Psalms in his language touches on the full spectrum of life and all the emotion that goes with it. And this book is, as the Hebrews referred to it as Tehillim, which literally means songs of praise. It's a collection of 150 different worship songs, different songs of praise that they would use in temple and synagogue uh, worship. Um, they, they were written by seven different identified authors, ones that we know that identified themselves. But even on top of that, there are several that are anonymous and we don't know who, who wrote them. Um, they were written during different eras of Israel's history, uh, spanning the course of several centuries. And so this is this beautiful collection we have. And it's the longest book in the Bible, and it's actually the most quoted book uh, in the New Testament. It seemed to be Jesus's favorite book. Um, Because the Psalms is essentially a song book, it has to be read and it has to be studied as poetry and as lyrics. And because of this, you'll find that as you read this poetry, you will come across hyperbolic uh, language, hyperbolic imagery that details the depth of emotion, the depth of emotion that accompanies the human experience. And it's my hope as we walk through these psalms together for the next couple of months throughout the summer that through studying these, we would truly delight in God. That is our end goal, that we would delight in God. C.S. Lewis, um, the famous author of the Narnia series, understood this when he was reflecting on the psalms. He, he said, the, the most valuable thing, is the, the thing the psalms do for me is to express the same delight in God which made David dance. That's the type of joy and delight that we want to find in God, so much that it elicits just this emotional response. And so with that being said, let's walk through the door. Let's take a look at Psalm 1. I'll read it, and then we'll pray, and we'll begin. Psalm 
1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Heavenly Father, I pray now as we enter into this first psalm that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, Lord. Open our mind to understand you and your law and your way and your order, and let it travel to our hearts, Father. Give us the desire to praise and honor you. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. In uh, 1916, the famous poet Robert Frost penned his famous poem, The Road Not Taken. It's one of the most famous poems in literature. You're probably a little familiar with it. However, it is one of the most misunderstood poems. Um, in the poem, Frost is explaining that he, he is standing in a fork in the road. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both. Um, he's examining the two, two paths, right? The two roads, and they are uh, virtually equal. They are just as fair. The leaves are laying on them just the same. They appear to be, uh, they, they both appear to be traveled equally. And Frost is just kind of looking at two different directions, a decision, so to speak, in life. And he can't seem to pick between the two because of how similar they are. Um, and here we find Robert Frost agonizing over the decision of which path to take in which he cl- concludes in the final stanza. He looks to the future, and this is what he says. I've got the words up on the screen. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. This final stanza is a fabrication that he tells himself in his old age in order to make himself feel like his decision was significant. He's lying to himself. He's looking back, having taken one road and regretting possibly not going down the other road. He's looking into the future, justifying the decision he made, when in all reality, the first three stanzas go to great lengths to show that his decision was relatively arbitrary. You see, this poem is an ironic commentary on how we make decisions and then nevertheless convince ourselves of their importance. To to Frost, there is no decision at all. There really isn't a decision. There is no right or wrong road to take. There is no right or wrong decision. And in the specific sense, he may be right. There are decisions that you will make that bear no weight on your future. They, they, they will not have an impact on your life. However, in the broad sense, in the larger scale, as you, as you look at life and all that it has to offer, I am going to have to respectfully disagree with Mr. Frost. I'm going to have to disagree with him. In this life, there are two roads. 
And while some may struggle to differentiate the two at face value, they lead to completely two different destinations. And if you were to follow Jesus's teachings, you would find that he agrees with me. If you were to go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Jesus is preaching and he introduces kind of this dichotomy of two roads. He describes life in in several different ways, right? Two gates, one wide, one narrow. Two roads, two trees that bear two types of fruit. Two houses built on two different foundations. It's all there. It's, It's this doctrine of two ways. And these two ways are described in the psalm that we just read a moment ago. And so let's take a look. Let's take a little bit of a deeper dive. Right away in verse 1, it sets the context, not just for Psalm 1, but the entire psalm. The very first phrase, we see the end goal in mind when the passage begins, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. The word blessed here means supreme happiness, supreme fulfillment. Ultimate satisfaction. And once again, right off the bat, I look at this and I read this and I think, wow, the scripture knows me. The scripture knows me and my need for fulfillment. The aching in my heart to find satisfaction. The ever longing desire in my soul to have fulfillment in my life. Perhaps you sit here today and you think, Mike, there is no satisfaction in my heart. There's, there is no fulfillment. Your heart groans for something more as you thirst for something greater. Psalm 1 introduces us to the direction in which we find supreme happiness, supreme fulfillment. You see, every line of work works towards a certain goal. It seeks something, right? Athletics seeks out trophies and awards and accolades. Medicine, the end goal of medicine is to seek good health, a cure. Commerce, business, to seek wealth and prosperity. Likewise, humankind, the ultimate end goal of humankind is blessedness, happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment. And so this sets the stage for the rest of the Psalms. This shows us that God gave us the Psalms. They're given to us by God for our good, for our satisfaction. And so what does the blessed man look like? How do, we, how do we find such blessedness? Well, he begins actually not by explaining what the man looks like, but what the man doesn't look like. He begins with the negative. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Right here, we've got this poetic device. We call it parallelism. Essentially, he's saying the same thing over and over again in different ways to show how important this is. But despite the parallelism, and although he is showing you how important this is, and he is sending one message to you, you can't but help, you can't help but notice a progression that occurs, right, in this, this first verse. Right, You see a progression that takes place. The sinful pattern um, is accelerated the deeper you go. And it all begins when you walk in the counsel of the wicked. The counsel of the wicked. This, is a thought, this affects your thinking. Sinful behavior is always preceded by sinful thought life. That's where it begins. Not in any action that you've taken, but in your, in your mind. What you're thinking. 
right? And once you let sinful thinking enter into your mind and kind of let it play around a little bit in there and have a heyday, it, it begins to shift your perception, You begin to look at the world differently. You begin to look at God differently. You know, what happens is when you let sinful thinking into your mind, this way, this way that you are going down hijacks your mind and wreaks absolute havoc if you let it in. And then all of a sudden you're not in the counsel of the wicked. You're now standing in the way of the sinners. Your sinful thinking has turned into sinful behavior. You're not just thinking like the wicked, but you're actually acting on it. You're doing what they're doing. And if you continue down this pattern, this path, this way, unchecked, you will find yourself finally sitting in the seat of scoffers and mockers, who really are the antithesis of the wise and the discerning. Think about the mocker, the, the, the scoffer. Now you are not only playing their game, but you are actively campaigning against the ways of God. That's what the scoffer and the mocker is. It's the worst kind of wicked. It's the worst kind of sinner because now you're not only going along with them, but you are actively going against God. You are scoffing at him. You are mocking him. You are campaigning against him. You are sitting in the seat of the scoffer, the mocker. You now identify with them. You've become one of them. You belong. You dwell with them. We move from thinking to behaving to belonging. And if there's one thing that I could point to in our culture, the one thing that I think is, is just apparent in this mindset, in this way, it's, it's this idea of sexual sin. It's this, it's this sexual sin. And it would be easy to um, bring up the homosexuality issue. That would be a, an, easy, an easy shot because it seems to be the hot topic in culture right now. But I almost, I want to convince you guys that um, we need to take a step back and see that there is a bigger, more serious problem just with the sexual sin to begin with. Not just homosexuality, but all sexuality, right? It begins with the thought. It's, it's the people that, that are struggling with pornography, Right? It's the ones sitting here who are actively cheating on their husband or wife, physically or emotionally. Right? This is the way that we go. We, it starts with a thought, and then we think it's innocent, and then it changes our perception, and then, and then we act on it. And then before you know it, we are actively campaigning against God. God, who are you to say that you have a design for sexuality? Who are you to say that you've created it in, in this way? And there's many, many more. That's not the only sin that uh, goes down this slippery path, but it is one of them. It's a big one right now. So we move this progression. It's a dangerous slide that we go down. It's a dangerous, slippery slope. And it shows how powerful our influences have on us. That your influences have more power over you than you give them credit for. I had a... a, um, I knew an older pastor, used to be a youth pastor, who used to tell his students, if you hang out with bowlers, you are going to become a bowler. If you hang out with bowlers, you're going to become a bowler. Like, for instance, you go the first night um, because it's good company and you've got a close friend, uh, and they all wipe the floor with you <laughs> in, 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 the, in the bowling match. But then you decide to keep going back, right? 
And, and maybe the next week you get a little bit better. And then you find yourself like on YouTube looking up techniques and strategy, right? And you begin to learn how to bowl. And then you decide that you don't want to rent the nasty shoes that the bowling alley has anymore. You're going to go buy your own shoes, right? And then you decide to fork out the money for, for an actual bowling ball, right? Because you don't want to use somebody else's bowling ball. And then you know you've arrived when you get the neon button-down shirt with your name embroidered on it. And before you know it, after time, give it enough time, if you hang out with bowlers, you will become a bowler. This is the type of influence that people have on us. It doesn't take much to become like those you hang out with. Now, it would be, um, this isn't to say we should never come in contact with the wicked, with the sinful, with the scoffer. You may look at this and panic and go to the extreme and say, no, I'm just going to put myself in this little bubble. I'm going to put my kids in this little Christian bubble, and we don't want them to have any non-Christian friends, and we're not going to come and contact them because they're evil and they're wicked, and we don't want them to have an influence on us. To, to go to that extreme would be to misinterpret this text. Because after all, Jesus rubbed shoulders with sinners, did he not? He was accused of that himself. Why is he eating, sitting down with sinners? That's not what this text is telling us to do. However, what it is doing, what it is telling us is a call to evaluation. Evaluate who has influence over your life. Who is affecting your mindset? Who is changing your worldview? Who has influence in your lifestyle? Who are you becoming like? The poet warns us against setting a foot on this way, to be affected and changed by this way in fear that our hearts are hardened. Because as our hearts are hardened, as we go down this path, it becomes easier to sin. As we get deeper into sin, we build up a callus between God. And the further we go down this path, the thicker that callus gets. And the thicker that callus gets, the harder it is to hear God. And the harder that it is to hear God, the easier it is to sin, to walk this path of sin. This is illustrated in the popular story, uh, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We have a kind-hearted and gentle character in Dr. Jekyll who makes a potion that when consumed, transforms him into the diabolical Mr. Hyde. And Mr. Hyde, as Mr. Hyde, he now takes pleasure in the immoral, free from guilt, free from shame. He doesn't have that guilty conscience anymore when he does the wrong thing. And we see that Dr. Jekyll likes this. He likes that he can just kind of turn into this alter ego, Mr. Hyde. He, he, he seeks it, and he becomes addicted to this concoction. And the more the story goes along, the easier it becomes for him to change into Mr. Hyde, to the point where at the end of the story, Dr. Jekyll no longer needs the potion to turn into Mr. Hyde. He can become Mr. Hyde all by himself. The man or woman that walks like Mr. Hyde is not blessed. There is no satisfaction in the counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinners and the seat of the scoffers. Instead, there's another way. Thankfully, there's another way. Instead of following that path, the blessed delights in the Lord. 
That's what it says. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And the word for law here is the Hebrew word Torah. And you might recognize the word Torah as the first five books of the Bible, right? The first five books of the Bible, the law. However, um, the, the Torah in this sense is much bigger. In this context, the law of the Lord is not limited to merely the first five books of the Bible. However, it's the entire direction, the entire instruction from God. It's the complete revelation of God. So what this is saying is blessed is the man, supremely fulfilled, satisfied is the man who delights, who finds pleasure, who enjoys God's complete instruction. How satisfied is the man who, who meditates, who carefully and diligently gives attention to God's way day and night? How blessed is the man who totally immerses himself in God's instruction? Now, if you're anything like me, which I'm guessing you might be, I look at verse 2 and I say, that's, that's not me. That doesn't describe me. I feel like I can identify much more with verse one than I can verse two. I feel like I'm much more walking in the counsel of the wicked than I am delighting in the law of God. As I was preparing this week, I had an internal battle in my soul. As I looked at just my wretchedness and my wickedness, I thought, Lord, I can't preach this. I can't get up here. When I struggle so much to not walk in the way uh, of the sinner and the counsel and the scoffer, you know, we're stuck in verse one. In our sin, nobody delights in God's instruction. Nobody delights in it. It's not in our nature to delight in the law of God. Rather, it's our nature to be hostile to it, to be rebellious of it. That's our first inkling when we see God's law is not to delight in it, but to rebel from it. And this is, this is what happens. My, my heart is wicked and wretched and mired in sin. It's not natural for us to accept the things of God. And this is affirmed in Romans 8, verse 7. This is what Paul writes. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So not only are we hostile to God, not only do we not submit to God's law, but we can't. It's impossible for us to submit to God's law. And so in order for me to even be able to delight in the law of God, something needs to happen to me. There needs to be some kind of transfer transformation that needs to happen in my life outside of my own ability. I need a spiritual transplant because my sinful Wicked spirit is a disease and it's killing me and it needs to be removed and replaced with a perfect spirit. And this is what Romans 8 describes in the first five verses of Romans 8. Listen to this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. 
And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be met, uh, might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. I've been given a spiritual transplant. My flesh has been removed and God's spirit has been placed in with me. For who? For those who are in Christ. In our flesh and sin, we don't delight in God's law, in God's order, because it condemns us. We look at it and we can't live up to it. However, when we're in Christ, we no longer live in flesh and we're given Christ's spirit. We, we've been given that spiritual transplant. Now God's law no longer condemns us because the requirement was met through Jesus. And it's not until we're in Christ that we can truly delight in God's law because it's not until we are in Christ that we can understand what God's law is. When we are in Christ, we see that God's law points to Jesus. We see that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's law. And so when we look at God's law, it no longer condemns us. There is no longer shame. There is no longer guilt because Christ took that on for us. And so if you sit here and you say, hey, Mike, I'm one of those people that struggle with that sexual sin that you were talking about earlier. And you're sitting here and you're you're full of guilt and you're full of shame. I want to encourage you that, that my intention of bringing that up was not to condemn you because if you are in Christ, there is no longer condemnation. You don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to feel shame because Christ has taken that for you. Instead, if that's you, throw it at the foot of the cross. Go to Christ. You can't live up to God's law. Stop trying but Jesus did it for you. Don't walk in it any longer, not because you have to, but because you have the desire to delight in God's law. So here, when your eyes are opened to the beautiful grace of God that comes through Jesus, that you truly delight in the law of the Lord, because you now know who it points to. See, this really comes down to how you use God's law. We, we, we try to use it like a ladder to get to God, you will fail. If you try to climb to God, you will fall every single time. You know, because to the non-believer, the law is an oppressive burden. This is just a bunch of rules. Have you ever heard that? This is just a bunch of rules. It's a bunch of thou shalt not. It's a bunch of rules that I can't do and I can't live up to. And you kind of shake your fist at God and you scoff him and you mock him for setting up just, just a perfect system that you can't live up to. And you look at him like you might look to your father and say, I can't live up to what you have asked of me. I can't do that. And how God responds Maybe unlike your father, he will look to you and he says, you are right. You can't live up to my expectations. And I understand that. And I love you so much that I'm going to provide a substitute for you. I'm going to provide another way. And that way is Jesus, my own son, who's going to live the perfect life that you couldn't live and die the death that you deserved. No, instead of using God's law as a ladder, we have to use it as a mirror. 
a mirror that exposes our sin, exposes it for what it really is, a mirror that shows us that we're never going to live up to that requirement that God has set before us, but a mirror that points to somebody else who did, being Jesus. We delight in it, not because it saved us. It was powerless to do that. No, we delight in the law because the law is God's word and God's word is Jesus incarnate. Jesus is God's law, God's order, God's instruction in the flesh. And this is the way of the blessed man. And Jesus said this, you want to find satisfaction? You want to find fulfillment? I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want to get to God? You got to come through me. You have to come through me. There is no other way. And we see this illustrated. We see what this looks like in verses 3 through 4 illustrated. What does the blessed man look like? Let's take a look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Those who are in Christ are taken by God, like the master gardener, and you are removed from the arid, dry desert where nothing can flourish, and you are planted by streams of water. You are put in conditions where you can truly flourish, where you can truly thrive because you are now in Christ. And we're promised that this tree will yield its fruit in its season. What do we know about fruit and it being yielded in its season? We know that it comes eventually, right? The harvest comes. We don't know necessarily when it happens sometimes, but we know it's going to happen. Just as the sun rises, our crop produces fruit in its due time. What this means is that in God's timing, in the appropriate time, you will bear the fruit of eternal life. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we've been promised that it's coming. You will prosper. There will be a harvest. God has guaranteed that it's coming and its timing will be perfect. It won't be too late. It won't be too soon. And not only will this tree bear its fruit in season, but while we wait for the harvest, the leaf does not wither or, or fall. The leaf does not fall. The leaf does not wither. Wither despite the conditions despite the pain, despite the suffering, despite the loss that you experience in this life, those who are in Christ will endure. And you need to hold on to that promise because in this life, there is a lot of loss. There is a lot of pain. There is a lot of suffering. And sometimes it feels like the bad outweighs the good. Perhaps you're walking down this righteous path. You're following Jesus and you're looking at the other path and you're saying, that path looks so much easier than my path that I'm on right now. Lord, why would you take me through these valleys? Why would you make me suffer like this? All I want to do is go that other way because that looks a lot easier. It may feel like this way is harder, but I promise you by God's very own authority, that while you experience loss, the Christian life is gain. The Christian life is gain. You will bear fruit in its season. And until then, the leaves will not wither. You will endure if you are in Christ. You will endure if you are in Christ. This is not the case with the other way. 
with the way of the wicked, we get a much different illustration. The, the, the wicked are like chaff. A tree and chaff are opposite, like righteousness and wickedness. Here we get a picture of the threshing floor. We're brought to the threshing floor during the grain harvest. Back then in biblical times, the threshing floors would be on top of hills that would catch the most wind. And you would take the grain crop and you wanted the good stuff that was on the inside. And so you would bring it to the threshing floor, set it down, and it would be crushed either by an animal or some kind of threshing instrument, right? You'd you'd break it open and then you would take the grain. They would take it, scoop it up and throw it up as high as they could in the air. And the wind would blow off all the weightless chaff would blow away all the worthless, all the things that don't carry value and the good grain would fall to the floor to be collected. And then the chaff would either be scattered or burned. The chaff has no stability. The chaff has no place. The chaff has no worth. This is an illustration of the futile life apart from Christ. A life that labors in vain because they wind up on the burn pile. A life that doesn't stand a chance under God's judgment. You see, a lifestyle apart from God and his law, his instruction, his order, it may seem wonderful and exciting, But what this psalm is teaching us is that this is the direct route to emptiness and frustration. You can fool all your friends. You can fool them all you want. You can fool your your family that you've got it all together, that you're happy, that you're satisfied. But you know in the depths of your heart that you are empty and frustrated. And you grind your teeth trying to figure out what's missing, why that is the case. You're unsatisfied. You see, that way may be alluring and fun, but it's not blessed. You will not find satisfaction there. You can walk that way, but you will never come to a point on that path where you find ultimate fulfillment. And so do yourself a favor. If that's you sitting here this morning and I've just described the groanings of your heart, do yourself a favor, save yourself a lot of pain and switch paths. Switch paths. Follow Jesus. Because the path you're walking down, if it's not following Christ, leads to destruction. The final destination for those apart from Christ is one of demise. And this is where our passage comes to a close. Verses 5 and 6. We get a sneak peek at the final destination of both ways. Uh, Verses 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, the opposite destinies are not um, due to some impersonal or arbitrary decision. It's not because of any effort of our own, but merely because according to verse 6, God knows the righteous. Why does the path of the wicked demise? Because God doesn't know that path. They are left to their own vices and it kills them. But the righteous persevere because God knows them. He knows that way. The word for know here is it's a personal knowledge. It's an intimate experience that we've had with God through Christ. It's, it's not that he knows of you, but he knows you personally. 
It's the difference between me knowing an acquaintance, maybe talking every once in a while, knowing of a person and knowing my wife and knowing my children, knowing my best friend. He knows you like a son or a daughter because that's what you are to God. You have become a son or a daughter because of what Jesus did. And how does such knowledge work? Who can truly know somebody? How does God know us? It's because we carry the same spirit. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. I've got the words up on the screen, but I actually want to read a little bit before and a little bit after. Uh, Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. How do we know God and how does God know us? Because he has given us his spirit and his spirit knows him more than anybody else. Only the spirit of God knows. And we've been given that spiritual transplant, as I mentioned earlier. And those who do not have his spirit are not known. They are not known and they're going to hit a dead end. When all things come to pass, it's going to be a dead end. Jesus explained this in a parable at the end of Matthew 25 Um, in his time Uh, Ending his ministry before he goes to the cross, he gives this parable to describe what this is going to look like. It's the parable of the 10 virgins. It's a parable that describes kind of the day of judgment when Christ returns, what's going to happen. This is what Jesus says. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. So real quick, I'll stop right there. What's happening is you have 10 people, 10 people who are ready and 10 people who are not or excuse me, five people who are ready, five who are not, five who are prepared for Jesus coming back for the bridegroom and five who are not. So what's going to happen? Let's see, at midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. You had these five that were not prepared and they were locked out from the wedding banquet. The eternal blessing, the eternal satisfaction that comes with knowing Jesus. When Jesus returns, there are ones who he looked to and said, I don't know you. To be blessed, 
to have supreme satisfaction, fulfillment, happiness is to be known by Jesus. And when we are known by him, there are characteristics that cultivate in our lives, that brew up in our lives. We, we delight in his law. We meditate on it day and night. We prosper through pain and receive eternal life in its due time. That day, and there will come a day where you come face to face with Christ. What is he going to say to you? Will he welcome you in or will he look at you and say, I don't know you. I never knew you. Two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for the fact that I was on a path and you took me and you plucked me off that path and you delivered me to another path, one that leads to life, one that you know of, Lord, one that has a relationship with you, Lord. And so I pray now that if there's anyone even sitting here this morning who has yet to be found by you, that tonight, today would be the day. I pray that their hearts would be open, their eyes would be opened, Um, to see the beauty, the grace of Christ on the cross. I pray, Father, that they can see that your righteous requirement was met through him and they can turn to him. I praise you, Father, for this word and this good news. I lift up our offering to you, Father, as we take it and freely give uh, what we've worked hard to earn, but what you have richly blessed us with, Father. I pray that this would be an investment in making this way known, making your way known, Father. And in your holy name I pray, amen.